0: we're gonna have to work hard and we're gonna have to we gonna have to train hard but you know this, this group has got a has got a really work ethic you know so that's not gonna be the problem just be tough you know i think i think that that's a way that skiers american skiers have found success in the past and i don't think that that's likely to change ready i was born ready tonight we stay with them and we shut them down because we can't <gasps>
1: Oh, good for you! And how was it? The downhills
0: were really fast. The skis were just fast as lightning. When I skied well, I wasn't focused on what rank I was going to get, where I was going to be. I knew, internally, if I had a good race, if I performed well, I might have gotten second in a or I might have gotten 15. That didn't necessarily define my performance. To define my performance is how I felt I did. And when you run away from him, he's gonna run you down. Brooksy, if I wanted to explain it to you, I would. Well,
1: competition. You
0: know. and to perform, you've got to be focused, and you've got to be super relaxed. First of all, skis need wax.
1: Okay.
0: Yep. It's made with bits of real panther, So you know it's good. Well, and my general philosophy is, at any one point in time, you only do enough to improve.
1: Get some facts and come back and see.
0: 60% of the time, it works. Every time. That's the great thing about sport. That does make sense. And I don't care if you don't have any wins. You go play to win.
1: I'm sick and tired of hearing about it. What a great ski team, team the, team the Russians have. Screw them. This is your time. It's a really fun race, and now go out there and take it. Good afternoon. This is the Cedar Skier Podcast. On our show today, we interview three time Olympian Jim Galanis. And we had to split this conversation up into multiple shows, so on this first show, we talk uh, with Jim about some of his career highlights, Olympic memories, and then we also get into a discussion uh, about reflecting on his career, as well as some training physiology uh, concepts and opinions. Um, And on our second episode, we're going to continue with that conversation, as well as get Jim's opinion on the current crop of U.S. Olympians and kind of the state of skiing in America. So... I won't keep you waiting. Here is part one of our sit down conversation here on the Cedar Skier Podcast. All right, let's, uh, we'll get started then. We got uh, Jim Galanis with us. And Jim, for ski fans, you know, we you don't need much of an introduction, but for some of our other listeners who, who might, you know, be younger or coming from a, not a ski specific background, could you just kind of let us know who you are, uh, the way I like to say, where you've been, where you're at, and where you're going?
0: Well, I, I grew up in Brattleboro, Vermont. And, uh, yeah, we're fortunate. We had we had some great ski programs and, you know, through my young younger high school, middle school years we we skied and and in this in the winter and played baseball and did kid stuff in the summer. But you know, as I got into high school I was a good runner, good good skier and did a lot of bike racing as well. Um you know, in, in 1974, I made the world championship team. Boy, that would have made me 18 years old. And, um, I skied Nordic combined for the U.S. ski team uh, for four years, and then I switched. until through the 1978 world championships, and then I switched to uh, just cross-country skiing, and I I skied for the U.S. team, I guess, for about 12 years, through the Olympics, and I don't know, two or four world championships, and Pretty much 12 years full-time on the World Cup. Now in the last 35 years, I've been mostly coaching, done a few other business projects, but mostly coaching. Uh, I spend a lot of my my coaching time really studying sports science, reviewing and training, and finding finding the optimal way, what I believe is the optimal way to train an athletes. That's really what I've been doing the last... The last Five or six years heavily, and before that, I was uh, in Stowe, Vermont, uh, running a ski landing service. Long and very
1: clear. Definitely. Yeah, you, no kidding. I, I, I knew you were in Frisco, and so are you doing kind of your current coaching, and when you talk about analyzing tra- training data, is that with Summit Nordic? Or who's who mostly primarily do you, do you work with, do you coach, and whose data you're kind of looking at?
0: Multiple things with my uh, training analysis system, and sometimes I consult with other coaches and monitor athletes' training, which has been a was a real interesting experience because I had no impact on their training, but I could see see what was going on. Um, but sure. I, I coach. I've got a speed skater. I've got a couple mountain bike riders. i um, got a couple skiers. I've got Master athletes that kind of do seasonal girls sports at an uh, elite level triathlete that I'm working with. So I'm kind of dabbling across many sports and kind of many different energy systems training processes.
1: Okay, I, I didn't really realize that actually. That so you're 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 with a lot of individuals. Um, I'm not. I think I had come across came across an article. Maybe it was a year ago too. Kind of seeing where you had for a period recently sort of taken over um as a not really manager i'm not sure what the right title would be at, at frisco nordic so that's i think that maybe that's where i'm kind of getting that yeah, i just kind of lumped that all together <laughs> the frisco nordic center summit nordic but
0: yeah, i worked for the town for a year and i worked for summit nordic for one
1: season okay okay i this next topic uh the Olympics I could probably coax you into questions for for three hours so I'll try to be brief uh, but the idea of being a pro athlete obviously representing you know a global scale that's something that I'm super fascinated by and you were fortunate enough to do it numerous, on numerous occasions. So just kind of want to focus on some of the unique memories you have from life and skiing as an athlete. And I'm sure you've been asked a lot of these stories or questions many times. So feel free to talk about those again, or even some of the lesser known special things that you sort of hold on to from that part of your life. Um, and you mentioned you competed in three Olympics during that 12 year run as a national team athlete, also won a few national titles. Um, and with such an incredible career, it, it, maybe it's not even possible, but can you, but can you highlight what you would consider as your greatest athletic accomplishment or achievement? And kind of a follow-up is, what What would you say is your best race? And and maybe different, what race are you most proud of? Yeah. I, <laughs> a lot there, right? <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a lot to unpack there. But,
0: um, you know, I, I think the first thing to say is I think in, in, in my personal – Competitive career. Um, certainly, the Olympics were more hyped up, but you know we were skiing whatever it was, 15 World Cup races a year. And I think the thing most people don't understand is, really, in the World Cup, you're skiing against the best skiers in the world, weekend and you know every every weekend or yeah. you know, every other weekend, and, and, and
1: those events. Countries like Norway might have ten skiers there, and three, eight, whatever. Right.
0: The field is much deeper in a World Cup because at the Olympics, I don't know how they do it now. But I think they do it like this, place. but you know, each country is only all allowed four skiers. except so from, from a competitive level, um, the Olympics were—I were, mean, yeah, it was pretty much just another race. In many ways, yeah, there was more
1: press focus and more attention. But sure. in
0: terms of the competitive environment, it was really just another race. And, um, and so I think that's, that's pretty important. And I think the difference between kind of the modern Olympics in this day and age is, is if an athlete is, is a high performer doing well, they, they can set themselves up for life if they're successful at the Olympics because the Olympics is much more visible now. Yes, uh, definitely. It, 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 it really wasn't in the equation. So, really, two different kind of mindsets, and so it it's really, it really was a different, different type of experience. But three Olympics, those in, and like in 1976, and Mike Placid in '80, and Sydney in '84, and uh, They were all different kind of experiences and events. Lake Placid was, Innsbruck was my first time in it. I was another combined skier. I think I was in the top 15 or something like that. Had a really great ski race, but the highlight of that experience was, um, you know, obviously, Bill Cope from basically the same town as me inside of Vermont running silver medal in the 30K. Right,
1: right. Um, so that, that was that was a, a special experience
0: in itself. Um, you know, 1980 came with with uh, a lot of intense press speculation that we were going to win a medal in the relay, and the relay ended up being a disaster. Um, first leg, I can't remember who speeded it. But first or second leg was like, it was just a waxing disaster. And we lost minutes. We were out of it, and none of us really picked up the slack and performed well after that. In, in that event, um, I think I skied really solidly, I think top 20-ish rankings in the 15 and the 30. Um, in the 50K, and in the final race there, I was in the top five, I think it was like 40 or 45Ks, and then bogged really bad.
1: Yeah it says I'm looking at your results page on the uh, Olympia website and it says the Olymp- the relay team is 8th and so in that 50k it has you at 20th. Not, I'm not sure if these are, are accurate. This is at, at Lake Placid. I,
0: I, probably, I mean I, I don't remember. I don't look at that stuff. That yeah old. yeah.
1: But I didn't I didn't realize you were so you were right up there though in contention there in that top 5. You said until 40k and then and then and then bonked like I think I've kind of I'm a little bit of a stat nerd so I sort of gone through some of these olympics and looked at different people's results and and it's like man it, it doesn't really when you just look at the numbers you're like man it doesn't really feel like we were ever relevant but then you don't know the story inside right like where you're saying we had a waxing disaster in the relay and you know then this or that happened and and sort of written this even in 76 where we got that silver medal you know, is kind of remarkable, but at the same time, it's sort of like you said, the Olympics back then weren't quite as much of the hoopla as they are now. Like, you made a great statement. You could set yourself up for life if you do well today. You know, the figure skating, the pressure is like, oh, there's millions of dollars on the line. So back in the 76, 80, 84, yeah, what was the culture like around the Olympics then? Was it was it really truly like, well, yeah, I'm going to Lake Placid for the, for the week for the Olympics? You know, like nowadays, it would just... It would be such a money thing. Yeah, yeah
0: it was. It was, it was I mean, it was clearly money. A point for the year. Clear. I mean,
1: clearly, it was. It was the, the, the priority for the year. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't so exposed and big
0: then, and that's a small difference. But yeah, the backstory in a lot of these things is, is really interesting. You know the. We didn't. We didn't have our Olympic trials, and I think it was probably two weekends before the game started. And we had a full slate of national championship events up in Mount Saint Ann, Canada, because there was no snow on the East Coast anywhere. Yeah. And so we had a full slate of, of Olympic trials races, and I had a fabulous fifty k there. Um, you know, in hindsight, it was it was just. It was a bad system then. It was just, I mean, people didn't know better. We were with everyone from administrators to coaches and everyone were learning as they went along what it took to be competitive at that level, but to have a full-blown national championship finish like, you know, eight or nine days before the start of the Olympics just doesn't make any sense. And yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of our energy out of the bank having a full-blown nationals and particularly having a 50K as the last event at nationals and then moving from there right down to Lake Placid
1: for the Olympics is, um, you know, there was was things that made it it tough to have a successful Olympics here. So you said you felt after that 50K, even though you bonked, you're like, okay, I can ski with these guys. Just backtracking a little bit, like in 76, uh, you're 20 years old, was that more like, oh my gosh, I get to you know kind of wide-eyed bushy-haired or what was that olympics like or you know like at what point did you kind of turn the flip the switch of realizing hey i'm it's not just cool that i have red white and blue and i'm wearing the jersey but like i could actually do something here you know well the,
0: the 1980 price right probably the year
1: before that 70 79 okay kind of a Kind of that point for me. 70, I, was, I was. I
0: didn't have enough experience, and it, it wasn't. You know. Again, here, here's here's 1976 Olympics. We stayed in a hotel up in Seyfeld. The the village and you know, all that stuff was down in Innsbruck, thirty yeah. minutes away or whatever. And yeah. And so it was just cross country athletes that were that were staying there. So it wasn't it wasn't this big extravagant event. It was we were up there, and that's we were doing our races. And in general, that's the way all the Olympics worked out. The cross country venue venues were, up, were were most separated from the main site. So we were we were kind of off on our own in Lake Placid. We stayed at the Northwood School, which was just across the street, really from from the ski trail. So we were in the Olympics village we went downtown Lake placid right we're kind of removed from all that stuff and just focused on what was going on with our races you don't you don't have time to do to do stuff
1: oh no yeah you had a full slate and i'll kind of i sorry if i'm veering off on you know the the things i had sent you to but i i I tend to do that i get curious (laughs) because i was gonna I, i go back to lake placid and you did four events yeah you're busy 15k 30k relay 50k um, and you, you, just touched briefly on, on a couple of memories from those races, but do you have any more that you want to share memories from the, from the performances, maybe the course, uh, and feel free to comment on the new course too. Uh, but just memories you have from back then, maybe, maybe individual athletes where you just. That guy was so on, I just couldn't believe it. Or this guy was the unsung hero that no one really found out about. Uh, What memories do you have from there? And then my next question I'll ask, I can ask more about just Lake Placid in general, because I think the general athletic public, you know, we remember that because of what happened with hockey, but just focus on cross country. Like what were some of those cool things that you remember?
0: I mean, obviously, the, the biggest one was, was the race between Thomas Vosberg and, and Juha Maito on the 15K, obviously. I can't remember what it was, a thousandth of a second difference in time. Yeah, game. yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, it was Lake Placid overall was just a challenging experience. It was 100% man-made snow. And, you know, we'd never waxed for or dealt in that situation before. Um, that was really, really a first, um, you know, the, for the 50 K, I can't remember they had a 17 and a half, you can do about three times 17 and a half or whatever, or K loop. So, you know, we, we, we've, we've been in Lake Placid the year before for nationals and, and, uh, kind of pre-Olympic events. And so all the courses we kind of learned and knew were totally different for the Olympics. But those 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 courses, yeah, it was it was. I think by yeah, maybe with the exception of the 1988 Olympics in Calgary, Lake Placid courses were probably about the toughest courses ever up until that point in time.
1: Yeah, it says like the total climbing in the 50k was 1400 meters. Um, when you say tough, like I was it tough technically or just from an aerobic, you know, constant rolling, you know, like what, what's what or everything, all the above. <laughs> um, there were, there were,
0: coming back down into the stadium over the final. Kilometer, kilometer and a half. There were some very technical downhill, but generally it was pretty straight ahead, kind of grunting skiing. Just long sustained climbs. uh, Within those long sustained climbs, really uh, significant changes in in grades, which required changing, kind of modifying technique and cadence. And um, so they were just they're just challenging, from, from more so probably from the physical.
1: Uh, and and kind of like scrolling through some of those results you mentioned the 15k had the really epic finish was there a chance for you to sort of hear that reverberating around you know you said you were in a hotel kind of kind of closed away but did cross did you hear the 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 dialogue between skiers from the other nations too like wow can't believe that happened or or uh Miedo got kind of ripped off or you know or wow the Russians after they no I
0: mean anything we kind of heard of knew of it was what we read in the press I mean everyone you know no we weren't all staying and you know US team was at the Northwood
1: school and I' don't, the fans were yeah on the street in a house and, and so I mean unlike the World Cup we, we were, everyone was kind of isolated there you don't have that kind of dialogue sure I, sure um, did I mean, you we were,
0: we were pretty cloistered there and that that probably in hindsight wasn't the best thing in terms of uh, the psychology of the race.
1: <laughs> well, Lake Placid's kind of a romantic city too. I, we went there when I coached at, at Umpy the one year too. we stayed there for for the um, St Lawrence meet and it's just like I, I'm, I'm so glad I got that experience to go there. As a sports fan, I've always read about those games and I got to hold a gold medal from the hockey. Uh, team, one of my cross country teammates from Moorhead, Minnesota, their dad, Dave Christian, was on it. So it was like kind of that cool to, to reconnect. And now it's speaking with you, hearing about sort of what the games are like and for a cross country athlete and it's really focused. Like, what memories do you have, or if any, then, do you remember, like, when the hockey team won? Like, oh, guys, we should go check this out. Or I don't even know what the timing was of that. You know, like, maybe you had to be in bed early. You didn't even know. You know, like, getting ready for a race. Like, what are there... I, I, we, we were
0: watching it on TV, for sure. Okay. Okay. Um,
1: yeah. It, yeah, it was definitely a big
0: deal. But, again, we were, we were I don't know, six or seven miles from... The, the hockey arena, so
1: it's not like we were, we were right there. Yeah, you weren't on the street. What was it like competing in like Placid when it's when it is hometown? Like, did that make you feel any different? Was there more excitement because you're in your backyard, or um, did it, did it elevate you in some way or not?
0: Um, I don't I don't think so. I think I, I think there was. <sighs> I think the press was pretty hard on us. There was there was a lot of expectation for um, a medal in the relay, and, and you know obviously eighth place is a long ways from a medal, and that kind of created a, a, a pretty weird atmosphere there. There was going into the games, there was a lot of speculation, and, and you know and the press wasn't overly kind, and particularly to Bill Cope in terms of how how we performed at the games and. So, uh, yeah, it just made it, it, I think it increased the, the, the kind of anxiety around racing and, and probably detracted from the kind of focus you really need to have
1: to perform well. I just am reading this this book, Tyler Hamilton, his insights in cycling, and the thing that shocked me the most wasn't that, yeah, it's prevalent, we knew it was prevalent, it's how cavalier it was, like all the athletes knew and, and were talking about it, and I guess – uh. You know, back in the 80s, when you were competing, sounds to me like, no, it wasn't like these conversations were just cavalier within the peloton of cross-country no. skiing, so to speak.
0: Right, no, there, yeah. there was no tacit <laughs> understanding that it was going on.
1: Sure. Well, what is the starkest difference you see in being an Olympic skier in the 80s versus today? Everything from I know from a sports science side, we could talk all day about how like equipment has revolutionized the the uh, the things we can even do in skiing, like just double pole alone. My thesis is like illuminating that where it's it's become such a more dynamic movement because we have stiff poles that are light and that's changed training and everything. But but you can even you can talk a little bit about sports science what's different between the athletes of then and today but also you know what you see with travel equipment you know budgets uh, venues all of that cuz cuz you really have have been in the sport so long you really have a good eye for seeing the entire history of how it's revolutionized yeah. you know yeah right.
0: i don't know how it is now i haven't been to a high level competition in a number of years clearly Sports science has evolved, and, and I think, from me, from my perspective, I feel like in the last five to ten years, it's 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 made a, a quantum leap. But, I, I, yeah, I, I, I impressed myself. Uh, I can't remember if it was the last one or the one before. There were some YouTube videos that popped up of the 1982 World Championship, where I had a great 30K race for myself there. And I looking at the results, you know, the scroll on the YouTube thing. I looked at the times and I said, like, geez, you know, if you if you break it down to the per kilometer change, we were much slower than the top guys are now. In spite of improved grooming, improved skiing, skis, ski technology and waxing technology uh, and all these other factors. Um, so I was, I was pretty impressed by that. With all the changes, the speed kind of hasn't made the
1: leap we might expect it to have made. Yeah, I know.
0: Especially in skating. i, 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 I got to compare classic races then and now. You can't, skating now is obviously so much faster.
1: Sure, sure. Um, so that, that, that was
0: one, one pretty eye-opening thing. Uh, thing to kind of go back and, and take a look
1: at. Yeah, I think on that point, I'm always shocked too, even, even farther back when you read about in the 1900s, you know, like some of the first times they did those major marathons over in Europe and, and how fast they could cover it wearing like I mean, really heavy skis and maybe they had to ski to the venue to race and <laughs> they're going through the woods. It's like, that's kind of remarkable. I, I think, to your point, the fitness of the human body, the, fit, the actual fitness maybe isn't much different but still at the same time, you know, clearly there's this, you know, if you looked at the numbers of, well, the percentage usage of certain sub techniques is different. And I think that speaks to, you know, the, the courses now, they're trying to make them steeper. So you can't just double pull it. Well, then someone just gets strong enough to do it anyway. And, and um, you know, th- that's maybe more the revolution that that is seen as opposed to just strictly those times. Because like you're saying, it, it is kind of insane how fast you know, you guys were going too compared to what it is now. I was going to say, um, today we see guys like Johannes Klabo. He's making innovations and people sort of look up to him. You know, now everyone's practicing his classic sprint technique for steep uphills and all that and, and innovating. And, you know, back in your day, was there a skier that everyone kind of looked up to either because they were such a personality or they were so dominant or because they were super creative? Well, Bill
0: Koch is, you know, a good friend of mine and a teammate, and we trained together. I trained with Bill probably as much as I trained with anyone. Um, you know, he he. We went after the World Cup season ended. We typically traveled to and you know, the north in Scandinavia, kind of the night racer, circuit so to make a little money, and you know, we went to a river race in a town called Umeå, Sweden. And, you know, back then we were, it was only classic skiing. These, these days that were on the marathon circuit just blew us out of the water and they were just doing what we called the marathon skate at that point in time. And for the rest of that spring, Will and I would play around every day, every time we were in a training session on skating a little bit. Uh, so he, he, he was well ahead of the rest of
1: us in terms of innovating, yeah. Wait, so you say the marathon skate was something you guys saw in Sweden? And then he, ca- you guys were like, oh, we got to learn that? Yes, for sure. Uh, I was I was always under the impression... I always thought Bill was the one who kind of, like, invented that, but that's just more the Wikipedia version, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of versions
0: to that. <laughs> 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 That's, that's what happened and, and uh, you know and then I can't remember what year it was either it must have been in the 82, 83 time frame probably you know we were at a race in Fallon, in Sweden it was snowing 32 degrees and um through my, I was skiing on Edsbin skis at that time and my interaction with my service representative from Edsbin, we figured out that You could rough up the bases and and uh, under the foot get really great kick in those that narrow range of conditions. Yeah, we did it for the race, and you know Bill was first and Dan Semmel was second, or vice versa. That's crazy. You know renovations we did. You know we still we still have these debates. Uh, Probably not so much anymore. Ten years ago, we had a lot of debates on the speed of roller skis and the resistance, the metabolic demand of roller ski versus skiing. You know, back in the early 80s, Bill and I were doing, making basically what, what we see now in a lot of the products is the speed reducers and to slow the skis down so we can engage more muscle mass and, you know, and get better with a, with a resistance a more similar to skiing. So he was, he was a great innovator.
1: That's great. And I kind of suspected you'd talk about Bill when I asked this question. I was, I was curious if, um, on the international stage, if he was also viewed by his contemporaries as being the same way, you know, were the guys from Norway going, yeah, yeah, Bill's the guy, you know, he's, he's changing the game or if they sort of had their own version, each country kind of had their own Bill Coke, or if there was a guy that, you know, internationally, cause I, I would have guessed it within, a, within us skiing, that's who you were kind of, um, you know. You were with you were you were a teammate of and you looked up to to some extent. But was there anyone else internationally, or was that Bill too? Did did the other skiers look at him the same way? That
0: was was Bill too. I mean, you know, you can go back to the relay in the nineteen seventy six Olympics. Fisher made a mohair ski with an insert mohair insert under the in the kick and certainly other skiers had him available. Bill had a pair that Fisher gave him for the. The Olympics And the relay, Bill crushed everyone in his life because he used the Mohair skis. No one else dared to. So there's an element of being able to take these calculated risks, and, and you know, I think I think Amer- our American mentality, is more in tune with that than say the traditional Nordic countries.
1: Yeah, that's that's really cool to to hear. So, I, America, right? We're we're the innovators. In all the sports, I guess, huh? A little bit. So American pride. Um. I okay. So this is you've been you've skied everywhere. This is just probably a quicker one to answer. Uh, what's the greatest trail you've ever skied on in the whole world, and and also what's the best trail system in North America and why?
0: You know, again, everything's changed in this day and age because they've gone to more race loops. But I would have to say, internationally the, the Nordmarker region around Oslo where the Holman comes yeah every year. Is probably you know the most iconic trail system. And um yeah, for both training and racing, you know, back back in my era the fifty K and in Oslo was actually a fifty four K. It was two two laps of a of a twenty
1: seven and a half kilometer loop or something. So yeah, the heck. Yep. Back. back. Yep. Um, you know, now they go
0: around short 10, 12K loops or whatever. Um, but the, the skiing and the training you know, and the snow conditions in that is a little, it was just amazing. It was a great place to ski and train, race and train. Racing train. Uh, in North America, hands down, Anchorage, Alaska has the best trail systems anywhere. They have been in the design and construction building of construction of trails um, for 20 or 30 years, and you have you have a wide variety of trails, and I, I think it's one thing everyone wants to have homologated trails, but the training, if you stay on a homologated trail every day, you're going to be over
1: Yeah, no kidding. <laughs>
0: the great thing about the trail systems... And you know, if I, in Anchorage, if I wanted to do an easy distance ski, I could go out and cruise on some easier trails. If I wanted to do a hard tempo workout or an interval workout, I could select some hilly trails. Um, they, they, they. A couple of good friends of mine, Jim Mahaffey and Dick Moniz and Jim Bernkohler, up there, they, they, they made a lot of effort to design trails with physical, technical, and tactical. Elements
1: into it. Yeah, well, that's I. I got to get up to Anchorage. I guess I. I've been on the Nordmarka uh, system once before and saw the signs for the old course and took some of those. And that is that's quite something. It is. It's incredible. An incredible system. Um, it'd be really cool if we had something like like that where you could ski across an entire country and have it be piston-bully groomed every thirty-one hours, practically on the dot. So. Um, all right, so I got a couple of quotes from your career, and then we can move on to talking about some of these other topics too, but wanted you to just give a response uh, to what they are. This is from an article by Bill Holland from, from 1984. Uh, so it says, When I relayed Jim's disappointment to Nordic program director Jim Page, he laughed. It, quote, If Jim were to win an Olympic gold medal, he'd give a half-hour dissertation on all the mistakes he made. End quote. And Then on a more serious note, he added... Quote, one of Jim's problems in the past is that he puts enormous pressure on himself to perform at a level that was almost unreasonable. Frankly, we'd rather have him finishing eighth or ninth right now than first because it would just put that that much more pressure on him basically though jim's never gotten the season off to such a good start right now we feel he's exactly where he needs to be and he's going to continue building he's definitely within the range of the top three going into uh the 1984 olympics so a lot to unpack there maybe but i wanted to just kind of ask you what comes to mind when you hear that quote in your place of mind going to 84 games and then how things fared and that was kind of the end you know kind of near the end of your career too and,
0: and, and those are a reasonably fair statement. I don't agree with every aspect of it, obviously, but, you know, that's, that's one man's perception. Um, I'm, I'm rereading a bit about Bill Rogers right now. And, and for those that don't know Bill, because he's back in the 70s, one of the U.S.'s eminent marathon runners. Yep. And, and, and he and I share similar philosophies about performance. Yeah, I was I was happy when I had a I had a great race, um, but I also, you know, to re- reference back to Jim Page's statement, you know, I when I, even when I had a great race or a great race for me, I knew I'm, I was inside my body. I knew what I could have done better, what I should have done better. Where there were mental lapses, where there was focus lapses, um, and and. Those, those are valid. as coaches, you need to, you need to, you need to validate those, those feelings of the athletes because they're giving you really great feedback into what you need to work on, whether it's physically or or mentally. Uh, and I can give you a, a really uh, great example about it in the World Cup final. I think it was in nineteen eighty five, maybe it was eighty four in the Monsk, Russia. Um I went to the first five Ks, and I was probably I can't remember getting split times from. Mike Gallagher, Will Patterson, uh, one of the coaches, and I was quite right, 10th, 15th place. By 10Ks, I was up in mm-hmm. fifth place. Uh, so I was just moving. well. Wow, it was one of those days um, when everything physically and mentally was connected. But then when I got that last split at 10Ks, um, I shifted my mental focus because I was like, wow, okay, I'm in fifth place. This is good. And I, I went from skiing in a aggressive, uh, mentally focused race to what I would call preserving my position. Two different focuses. And, yeah, I ended up fifth. But I went from 15th to fifth. And then no no further forward progress. Uh, and so, you know, folks are going, oh, fifth, that's awesome, that's great. Perfect, but I know in my mind I should have won that race, and that that's a valid, um, a valid feeling, and and um, physically and and mentally, I know that that's where I should have been. Yeah, I think for a lot of top athletes, it's 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 that. Well, I'm not. I never. Yeah, once in a while, national championships, or if, if, if things were feeling overly competitive, we, we got competitive with each other, and I don't think that was a good thing. When when I skied well, I wasn't focused on what rank I was going to get, who I was going to be. I knew internally if I had a good race, if I performed well, I might have gotten 7th in a camp or I might have gotten 15th or I might have gotten fifth, whatever the the, the numerical ranking was, that that didn't necessarily define my performance. What defined my performance is how I felt I did, what I did well, and and perhaps
1: what I didn't do so well. Uh, Would you say you're someone who kind of defined your performance too by did I maximize my potential? Like looking back in all those different elements, Technical, mental, physio, you know, physiological, nutritional, whatever. Did I give a hundred percent effort to do everything I could? Were you more that type where it's like, that's what I'm going to concern myself with?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that yeah, I mean, that's in essence what I just, what I just explained. Yeah, it's, yeah. I think, I think, you know, and, and 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 a lot of my attitudes around racing came from you know being friends with Bill, Bill Coke. Bill Coke was tremendous at that. He wasn't competing against other people. He 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 he, he had the ability to focus beyond um, what I could do on my best days. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and and you know when you get in that, I know uh, I had a race in, in Labrador City. I can't remember what year. it was—the first World Cup of the year, whatever year it was—and. I'd taken a year off for health issues, and I came back, and I had this race where I was so mer- 15K Classic Race, Labrador City World Cup, Opener of the Year, and I had this experience where um, I was so focused on my performance. I was internally focused and only externally focused to the point where I could you know, monitor the trail, monitor how I was skiing. And I felt like I was skiing in a tunnel. People, coaches, no, I mean, nothing else was in that world. And when you get to that level of, of, of psychological focus during a performance, you don't feel the pain right. that, that you do when you're not focused. I mean, it's, it's not even
1: comparable. You're, you're in a different Plane of, of mentality. Okay, so I wanna I wanna touch off this because this I'm in total agreement with you, and I think peak performance occurs when we are focused internally on that on that versus um, I hate this guy and I need to beat him, and that's where I'm gonna derive my strength for this race. But we all know and have experienced athletes either coached them or competed against them where they're they're a little more the opposite, where they they're out there and they're, they are like driven and find their fuel from the, the element of competition in a me versus you. Right. Person versus person versus person versus self. H- how would you try to mentor someone who is maybe more like that, or how would you explain to someone who might disagree with you? And go, oh, man, no, you're full of it. You're just, you're just a wimp, and you don't want to compete. You know, that's what it's all about. Is if you, if you know what I mean? Because I'm in agreement with you, but just curious to kind of what you would say. Well, I,
0: don't, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think wimp for me would necessarily work for you. And and some people are, are externally motivated, and, and and that's for them that may be a good strategy. I think in terms of. Of, of my coaching experience, I, I try to share with people um, that I believe that if 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 that's not their mindset, it's not going to work for them, and, and you have to help them find find ways to work for them. But I I, I know to perform, you've got to be focused, and you've got to be super relaxed, and and
1: whatever whatever, whatever gets
0: you mental. There process they need
1: to go through to get there that's 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 an individual thing okay um and, and so you know when i read that quote i kind of i guess i t- what i took away from it too is like you said well, i can't agree with everything you know some of that's misunderstood or Whatever, But what I took was, hey, Jim's clearly one of those guys who's a constant learner. He's a sponge. He's always reflecting on these different aspects, right? When he says, oh, you give a half-hour dissertation. Sometimes people think of that as being like this negative that here, here you are, someone who overthinks everything. Um, but the reality, I guess, that I would say, and, and maybe you can elaborate on this too um, – is there's there's a difference between product and process? You know, product being what you're actually doing and producing on whether it's the ski race or the concert hall if you're playing uh, trumpet or violin, and then there's that process understanding why and how you are able to make your product. And it seems like some people, they're paralyzed by trying to grapple with process. They get no product. Then there's some people who are naturals and they just get product. They don't know anything about process. So when things fall apart, they don't really have anywhere to turn. Um, And so I guess it seems like on the continuum where you're at is you're someone who really is interested in understanding those basic foundations of training philosophy. This is what it takes to, to, to produce success. Um, talk about that, I guess, is, is where you're on that continuum. And, and I know you put some notes in here about, about some of your philosophies, but um, just give us a synopsis of that.
0: Yeah. Um, the First thing I would say is the physical and the mental are connected. And, and, and to be um, good and well-focused in the process, but also be able to produce the product, the physical and the mental have to be in, in balance. I, I think when an athlete is not able to focus, um, and and, and the, the the physical and mental is not in balance, it's because they're stressed, or they're tired, or they're overdone. I, I, I think people get kind of the paralysis you speak of. Um, I think comes from in in not all cases, of but in a a lot of cases from blindly following a training program and they become addicted to the plan and they're not in tune well enough in tune with how their body's doing. If your body's tired or if you're just even a little off I mean, all of us know how it is in daily life. We're tired. It's hard to go Go to our work or study, or do whatever we're doing, and be uh, focused and, and performing at a high level. And, and that's one of the things that I think, from, from my coaching experience over the last decade, made a I believe made a big breakthrough. And I think we understand how to balance training load and recruitment, and, um, so that the athletes are always getting better. And if and if you can. Demonstrate to them that they're getting better on a weekly or every ten days or every two week basis. Their confidence is going to be better. Their recovery is going to be better, and then their focus and, uh, and, and the product is then product is going to be better. So I think all these things um,
1: really come together. Yeah, I think you really strike a nerve when you say, or stri- strike maybe strike a nerve is the wrong way of saying it, but but when you say the me- the mind and the body are connected, it does seem to me more like, and I've studied a lot sports science, I've had experience as an athlete too, and just kind of experimenting with training, but it almost seems like you have to be, the secret to success physically is you need to be in tune with your body, like you say, like listening to it, and then you have to believe, and, and that kind of is the compass for for your actual training load More, less, more rest, more intensity And then you have to believe in what you're doing <laughs> Like, because the actual Just, even if you have kind of a weird Training philosophy, if you believe in it That alone, like, affects How, how the training program will Impact you, you know, like I think I think it's often overlooked even by sports oh, scientists That hormones dictate our bodily Responses, physiologically
0: Of course they
1: you know, <laughs> Yeah
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's all one. I mean, and you know, I'm, I I I coach most of my people somewhat remotely. There's a couple local here, so we don't we don't. It's hard to have these kind of conversations over the phone or email. Yeah, um, it's an area that probably doesn't get addressed adequately. But it, it's just it's really important, and, and uh, you know, I think the ability. Um, to to balance training, there's, there's no doubt. To be a top athlete, you have to train a lot. Um, but you know, training a lot isn't the silver bullet either. It's it's how you get to over the the, the years to that workload. It's going to make you competitive on on that high level. I mean, I I get criticized a lot by a lot of coaches, but I think oh. I think overtraining is the biggest problem we have in this country, not undertraining. And it doesn't matter what endurance spirit it's in. Sure. I mean, I, I was at Mountain Bike Nationals last summer over Winter Park with a couple of my athletes. And, you know, the day before, you know, an hour and 30, hour 40-minute cross-country race, there were kids out there doing four or five times one-mile uphill repeats day before the race.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow the
0: next day they they're like that, that
1: <laughs> that's interesting as interesting it, it's just,
0: it, and I, I, see, I see it in all the sports and I'm involved with it. and it, it's not one or the other but training a lot is is necessary but creating that balance and 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 uh, finding that level for each individual over they are at their stage in development is critical.
1: Yeah, because it seems like you know I wouldn't want, I won't want you to be misunderstood either where you, you know you say um, you got to train a lot to be good, but really like what I what I take from from your philosophy and what, when I follow you and, and see the things you read and post is your, your focus on improvement, Right, like really, the, what, the main thing we know in sports science is that if you push the body and allow it to recover, it will super compensate. Now, doing that looks different based on person's age, where they're coming from, ability, outside stresses, all of that. And that's where, like, the art of coaching and being an athlete who's responsive maybe comes in. But at the same time, wouldn't you say that, hey, if you're doing those things right and seeing measurable improvement, then then whatever stimulus is necessary to get, to cause the next super compensation, whatever load, that's kind of what you need to be at. So is the problem more that we're fixating on, well, you just got to hit this number versus, no, we should be focusing on what is going to cause a stimulus in this athlete, you know?
0: Well. My, my general philosophy is you, at any one point in time, you only do enough to improve.
1: Right. And no more. And
0: that improvement, and, and as, as, as I mentioned previously, that improvement, Every, I, mean, I, I really believe, and this kind of jumping ahead of things, that people do wild and crazy things in training. You know, they've never run longer than, say, an hour and a half or two hours, And then they decide to call on a five-hour or six-hour training room. Right, right. There's no way what they've done has prepared them for that workout. So they're not going to benefit from it. By the time they recover from that, they've lost the benefits. I, I really believe, and I think current sports science um, on, on multiple fronts, uh, either our research on blood flow restriction training or, or looking at a lot of the studies on the hormonal response of training is and Zach Caldwell said this very well in a comment from one of my posts is if you do a hard workout, the response from that starts as soon as you stop the workout. The recovery response, the hormonal response, the cellular restructuring all starts happening immediately. And Zach's comment was, when you do an interval workout and you ask the athlete when they should get the benefit of that, it should be something like Sunday, not a month from now, or two months from now. This whole concept, I believe, where you you bury yourself for three, four, five months, and maybe you get some improvement, but it's erratic, Um, and then you think you're going to taper um, and all of a sudden things are going to come out great. Uh, I, don't, I just don't believe that I've not seen it in my experience. It. I'm an example of that. I trained too hard all the time and didn't allow, you know, all my distance runs, workouts, were level 2-3 rather than level 1-2, say. And when you do everything a little bit too hard, yeah, you may have some great days, and I had some great days, but... The predictability of performance is totally lost. The continual progression of fitness and performance is lost. It, it's a roll. It's a roller coaster ride.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're you're hitting it right on. Like that old school approach of load up, load up for months and months, and then hit like a one week taper, and then you're going to have the benefits in December of what you did in June is off. It's a much more um, the supercompensation process is is very micro. It's a micro thing, you know, within each week, sure. you, you know, I'd be, i interested with uh, something that kind of opened my eyes on that front when I was in college was a, a, a D3 coach wrote a book D3 cross country running. He wrote a book and he had all his training in there and the thing that was crazy was like he had his guys who were doing 100 mile weeks. So I mean that's that's the max pretty much that a D3 runner would be doing any distance runner and for 10k but but he had them building up, you know, 65, 70, 75 come back down to 70 and he did he just like if you're doing this right, you shouldn't have to like go down to 30 miles a week before nationals. Right, like if your if your body is recovering, yeah. you're you're getting it. And so I was like, that's interesting. Yeah, like because we don't think of it like that. We think of like everyone always uses that language, like we're putting money in the bank, you know, in August, and May, and yeah. it's it's like, well, I guess on a on a macro. Well, that, yeah, go ahead.
0: That, that's where they don't get the adaptive response. I I, I believe the science now, and my experience is, if, if you do a hard workout, let's say it's Wednesday. That adaptive, you have a window for that adaptive response to occur. And it's, it's days. Yep. It's not weeks or months. And if that adaptive response hasn't occurred in days because you were too tired, you're not going to get the performance and fitness improvement from it. Right. It doesn't happen. Right. And, and I, I to me, that, that's, that is just, yeah, it's so obvious. And a and lot of the people that the ask, in particular, uh, uh, cases of, I get I get a lot of rehabilitative cases. People that have been overtrained, or underperformed, whatever you want, and I use the word overtraining literally because I believe the old definition is based on old training theory. It's not based on modern training theory. Sure, and sure. I believe if your performance is not incrementally improving in a consistent time frame. Whether that's one week or two weeks or whatever, but some short time frame. If you're not consistently improving, you're overtrained.
1: Sure. Yeah. No. It makes sense too. I mean, I think I think that is uh, people need to take it more seriously. well, we're on the topic of sports science, let's kind of stay in some of those questions. Um, how did you get to be where you're at now? You know, I I don't know your your schooling background at all. Like, were you were you did you take an undergrad degree? exercise science was it masters was is is all the knowledge you have more just nah man i was just interested and and read the books available to me and kind of learned along the way uh what what is that Where did that start for you i
0: i did not go to college i don't have a degree i don't have anything in okay work science or i uh, i i have a very good friend who i doing some business with now consulting with now on b-strong bfr bands and yeah, that basically been a James Craig Anderson who in Park City. Um, when I got done skiing, he gave me Ostron's book, workbook, textbook, workbook of exercise physiology. And I've read it cover to cover many things. The material now is obviously dated. So it was back, he was back, back in the late 70s. But, um, yeah, I wanted to figure out the, the physiology of training and the in the theory of training, so we could do a better job. Because I know in my career, it was it was hit or miss. And I had a great coach, Henrik Strand from Sweden. I started working with him right after the 1980 Olympics, and uh, he was a great coach for me. Um, and further introduced me to the physiology. But you know, I didn't understand it as an athlete well enough to know that. And in hindsight, I can, I can easily say if I knew enough just to rein in my day-in and day-out distance training, I would have performed at even a much higher level than I did. I know that for a fact.
1: Sure. I was
0: on the edge of overtraining or overtraining pretty much all the time through my career. And that's what happens with motivated athletes. And we need, we need I felt I needed as a coach to understand these things. And, unfortunately, and, and the science, like I said, only in the last five or ten years, I think the science has really caught up with where we are in, in training theory these days.
1: What do you mean by that? Like, you mean the data is just starting to prove what coaches are already doing?
0: Well, I think the data proves what, let's say, the Scandinavian countries have been doing for years. Sure. Um, they, they had a higher understanding of that. Um, you know, I think, the, and I think, I just think the, the American culture—you know—even if the science was there, we've got this Calvinistic streak in us that you know, more is harder is better. You know, I think, I think we need to look at—we're trying to build the systems. We're not—I mean, I think people, and I think this is a mistake in exercise science philosophies. You have to. Damage, you have to break the system for it to rebuild and in strength training to some degree yeah that's true in high intensity training to some degree that's true but in endurance training the way we stress the system is by increasing the duration and, going and stressing that energy system for periods of time it's not how hard we go and I think that's a mistaken um, paradigm yeah. And we've got to get away from this thought. We need to break the system. And Bill Rogers,
1: you know, he hardly
0: ever did hard workouts. I mean I, I think hard workouts are important, very important. I'm not I'm not minimizing the value of that. Yeah. We can rest our way to good performance. But he just he said he felt he needed just to build his body up slowly and go easy and just enjoy the process and not feel dead tired every day and i think and i've read frank shorter's book too and i think in essence he's he frank shorter probably he probably didn't even know it at the time but he he was doing what i would call polarized
1: training um back in the 60s and 70s yeah i think um there's there's this balance between what we're talking about now between making sure you're not overtraining which as you're defining it right just if you're not making it adaptations and improvements you're overtraining. there's that side of the discussion and i also think there's the side physiologically speaking the other proven thing that i would argue we need to take into consideration is specificity adaptation so it, you're never going to be able to run a sub four mile if you never practice running sub four mile pace. And to me, if there's any discussion on where intensity should be involved in the picture, it really maybe is only that in endurance training. Because what you're, you know, I think you hit it on the nail on the head again. It's like for endurance training, we're stressing the system by going longer, right? We need this gradual improvement. And then you have to ask yourself yeah, okay, that's true. But if I'm MoFar and I need to run 51 seconds at the end of a 400, if I never run faster than six minute mile pace, yeah, no, no way. And if you if you practice the 51 second quarter more often, whatever you do becomes easier for your body to do. And I guess in my own training, I kind of like feel like, oh, that's sort of what I've learned is like, don't just do a hard workout to say you did a hard workout. Like have a, I'm, I'm practicing this specific pace. And I think Rogers, because his race pace, his races were marathons. Like, I think some of his training would be too he'd go out and just do double days lots of miles but he wasn't really running like dead slow he was he was just kind of like running by feel too a lot of times it would end up being like
0: yeah, he wasn't but he wasn't he was he was more of the artistic sort and i don't think he was yeah yeah he was he was as systematic as he, he could have been but
1: right right the
0: point is is it, it's not yeah, you have to go fast sometimes. If You want to run fast or ski fast. You have to train fast. Uh, and I think I think the biggest mistake in concept is say I prescribe almost exclusively level one training for distance. Yeah. And some people go, oh, well, like level two, I'm going to get stronger. That is an absolute fallacy. The force right. output on any movement, you're only going to get strong relative to the force you're applying.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: And the difference between level one and level two force is nothing. Sure, <laughs> you know? sure. So, people, we, we've got these mistaken concepts rattling around in, in, our, in our heads that we need to be pushing at every, every workout. We need to feel trashed every workout. Um, I, I think that's, that's destructive. When, uh, the body never repairs and recovers in that state. Right. I think that that's that's a that's a chronic problem. And the, the, the goal, to use your example, to, for Mo to be able to run a fifty-one second for hundred. Guess what? If he's overtrained on the days in between his home workouts, he isn't going to be able to do fifty-one. And if even if he can squeeze out a fifty-one, he's not going to adapt to it because he was tired going into the workout.
1: Right. Right. No, yeah, my my whole point is, is like yeah. you you have to practice what you want to do at some point too, which I think you're you obviously agree with. You know, like you can't you can't pull something out of the hat that has never been taught to the body, too, right? Well,
0: of course. I mean, and yeah. again, I'm I, I'm not implying that. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Roger's statement that he he doesn't doesn't do interval training, for example, is, is correct. I'm just saying that's, that was what he said. I know he did interval training. Because he would finish off some runs running at a five-minute pace for
1: right, right, right,
0: five or six months, right? right. And So I mean, yeah, he didn't do strict interval training on the track, but he he accomplished it through other other processes. His heart training is is really important. Um, and you can see how the pendulum has swung in endurance sports, by right, six or eight years ago, whatever it's been, now, maybe 10 years ago. You know, we since tried doing these blocks of intensity, you know, every day for a week or whatever. And but they found fitness in the short term, but it wasn't sustainable in the long term. And they always fell back down. And, yeah, so they tried that for a year or two, and they, they, they abandoned it. And what I see... Yeah, what I see in, in the U.S. And, and across many endurance sports is we're, we're sticking to a lot of training theory that's 20 and 30 years old that wasn't good 20 and 30 years ago. Well, I, I think you have to be open to try new things. I mean, I'm always trying new things, um, but you also got to be <laughs> to put them aside. And, um, yeah, uh, here, here's a great example Level 3 training, 8-8 threshold training. There's almost no science. I've only read one paper in my life. It was a bad Swedish study that demonstrated any physiological or significant physiological benefits from threshold training. Yet people still do it in massive amounts. Marathoners call it tempo training. But right. The science of improving lactate threshold, there's hundreds of studies. If you want to improve lactate thresholds, you do max VO2 training. Because so that
1: increases the rate of, of clearance of lactate. Right. Well, and what I um, what I wonder is if really the language almost needs to change as we're coaching coaches and coaching our athletes. Instead of using words like in like intensity, like we're going to do an intensity day today, or yesterday was a hard workout. I try to be careful with that by by encouraging my athletes, especially before they are actually starting the intervals, to say things like um, you're running at this speed, right? Like the goal of this workout is to practice running at this speed, running fast. Don't think running hard uh, and in skiing, especially don't just go, don't just ski hard for two minutes, ski fast for two minutes, like, like ski at your 10 K race pace for running, ski at at your 5 K run at your 5 K race pace. Because again, if we're talking about like That element of training the body to be better and more efficient at any given pace, that's what we want to accomplish. And I think actually to your point of the threshold training, you're exactly right. Like when we just have random people, we don't know what their race goals are. Maybe their race goal is to run a better two mile like do a tempo run it's like well that's not going to really benefit them at all because their race pace their goal is not at that pace so what we're not having them practice a pace now for a marathon runner like to me whenever i said the word tempo what i really actually meant was would always be marathon pace because this is the workout where i'm going to practice running at marathon pace so i get better at it you know so again it's like i almost wonder if the language needs to change for us as coaches
0: uh, i i think it, i think it does but uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna slightly disagree with you yeah go ahead i think the speed aspect you have to you have to be aware of you want to see improvements in speed that's that's the goal your velocity at vo2 max absolutely you want to see that stuff improve What I know from some personal research I did, whether we're talking about power meters on a bike or speed running, particularly in distance training, and I think this is a a fatal flaw in endurance training when you're using speed and power, is the cost of that speed or the cost of that watt can vary massively from day to day. One day, if you're... Say or set a training pace for distance training. Uh, say it's six thirty a mile. Sure. Some days that six thirty a mile might not have enough metabolic uh, activity to stimulate improvement. Other days it may have too much.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, I see where you're going there. I, see, but I mean, that's isn't that where you tell your athlete like, go at this pace uh effort right like because you're right like some days it's gonna take every it's gonna take an overtraining effort to get if i'm stuck to a number that that, that's maybe not what i meant more like at a at a race pace effort like we're always trying to train for a specific element to get the body adapting to so good good clarification if that's what if that's your head that's i i agree i i stand corrected
0: I mean, in cross-country skiing, it's more challenging. we got to keep looking at improving the speed and finding more speed because, well, at least an individual start race is and not as many of those anymore. But if you think about an individual start race uh, on a World Cup or Olympic level, it's win that race. It's basically like setting a world record because you don't know. You can't go, okay. This, this, this race should take me 35 minutes.
1: And right, minutes. right.
0: That's irrelevant. You got uphills and downhills, and, and the speeds all over the map. But you don't know what somebody else is going to do. So you have to learn to find and keep nudging that maximal velocity that you can sustain to higher and higher levels. And that has a lot to do with technique, mental focus, uh, energy systems. Um, Everything we do in training is geared towards, that's why I call it, continual improvement. That's, we gotta, we got to keep nudging that top velocity upward. There's no, there's no, we can't perceive there to be a cap on it, particularly for younger guys.
1: I think you you bring up a good point. Where with skiing, it's harder to judge how how you structure these trainings. I'd be interested what your what would your opinion be on then? Like in cycling, we've got power meters to really gauge the efforts we're putting in, so we get that continual improvement. And I spoke with a guy on one of our last shows about power meters and ski poles. And granted, this is something my my knee jerk reaction is great tool for the guys doing the Visma ski classics for sure, because it's that is, you know, you're double pulling 96% of the time. But what are your thoughts on like potential tools that would be helpful for coaches and athletes in skiing specifically to structure those workouts?